so today, um, we are going to look at John, that guy that we spent all year talking about last year. And John wrote five different books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, of course. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, shorter letters in the New Testament. And then John also wrote the book of Revelation. So John was a pretty significant character uh, in the life of the church. And the reason why I chose John to talk about leadership and influence, it's not so much because he had a sign on his desk, John the disciple, John the apostle. It's not a role that he carried in a public way, but it's the totality of how John lived his life. He was a guy from beginning to end who spent lots and lots of time quietly, silently leading others towards Jesus. I don't know about you, but I can relate to John. Because there he was for many, many years. John had great fortitude. He had endurance. He had longevity. He had what Eugene Peterson, uh, who wrote a book called Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He just kept putting one foot in front of the other, day after day, quietly witnessing and sharing his life with others. And I like that imagery um, there this morning because uh, back in the 90s, um, probably when we were you know, listening to the, the song that we sang this morning, anybody else get flashback of the Newsboys, just me? Growing up in the 80s, oh my goodness, that was just like, whoa. Um, and the rest of you are like, I've never heard that song before, right? Back in the 1990s, uh, I ran a marathon in Las Vegas, and we started out in the desert. And so we ran three miles, turned to the right, and ran 23 miles. Now, I've run 26 marathons before. That was the longest marathon I've ever run in my life, if you know what I mean. It was just mentally taxing. And I think this is really what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to just keep on keeping on, uh, sometimes through the wilderness. But it's, I'm entitling this sermon, Leadership Through longevity. So I gave you enough time. We should all be in First John by now. Let us pray. God, we thank you uh, that you are a God who invites us and uses us, ordinary people, to step into uh, leadership, who invites us to step into ministry. And God, you have equipped us and called us. And so, Lord, open our minds and our hearts to listen to what you might have to say to us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if I were to say Jimmy Buffett, you would say the song is Margaritaville, right? We probably heard a little bit about the news of Jimmy Buffett. Well, in 1977, Margaritaville rose through the charts to number seven in the pop charts, if you will. Now, here's the thing about uh, Jimmy Buffett and Margaritaville. Jimmy Buffett uh, went on to record 29 more albums, not songs, albums. I would imagine most of us in here could not name a single other song other than Margaritaville. Now, some of you people who wear, you know, Hawaiian shirts, you probably could, right? You're like, what do they call them, parrot heads or whatever? Some of you parrot heads, you could probably name a few more. But the truth is, Jimmy Buffett is really known for one song. And so if you ever went to a Jimmy Buffett concert, and I know some of you have because I saw it on Facebook. And he always sang that song, right? That's what Jimmy Buffett is known for. 
which means Jimmy Buffett is really in the category of a, a musician, a singer, who was what we call a one-hit wonder. He's, he's a one-hit wonder. You're like, ah, I'm not really into the whole Jimmy Buffett thing. And I thought, okay, well, um, if you grew up in the 1950s, you know the song Lollipop, right? Who, who's the one-hit wonder? Ronald and Ruby. You guys remember that song? You remember the song, okay. 1960s, Wipeout. Who was the one-hit wonder? You don't even remember anymore, do you? The Safaris. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we did the 70s. 80s, My People, Take On Me. Aha! Remember that song? One-hit wonder, aha, okay. In the 1990s, who could ever forget the Macarena? I did this, worked on the sermon earlier this week, and it's been in my head all week long, just cursing me. Los Del Rio. You're like, who? Yeah, it's because they were one-hit wonder. They had just one song, the, the Macarena, right? And it was just like, oh, shut it off, right? But a one-hit wonder, it's, it's really a, a singer, a musician, who kind of is a, is a flash in the pan. They come out with a song, and it's like, ah, it's the greatest song ever. But then they die away. They fade into the background. And like Jimmy Buffett, many of them go on to make lots and lots of music, but you show up for their concert, or you know what you really know them for is just that one song, because it just touches you. And maybe you're going through life and doing what you do, and, and all of a sudden you hear on the radio or you, you're in an elevator somewhere and you hear that one hit wonder and you're like, ah, it takes you back to the 70s or the 80s or the 60s or the 50s whenever you grew up. It's that nostalgic feeling of taking you back. And then you step out of the elevator back to your regular scheduled life and you go about doing your thing. I think in many ways, one-hit wonder, that's a great metaphor, a great image for what Christianity has become today for so many people in America. Maybe they grew up in church and they had wonderful experience in Sunday school or Bible camp or something, but it's gone. It's just a memory. It's just nostalgia. Maybe when, you know, youth went on a trip went to camp, went on a retreat, had a powerful experience. They're like, oh, it was so great. But it was so long ago. It was so good. But it's, it's not my life now. Or maybe even as parents, and I hear this all the time. Parents, maybe your, your kids were in a Sunday school program. Sometimes I talk to parents, they're like, oh, that Christmas program, it was the best. My child dressed up as a sheep. And they just will tell you all about when their child was a sheep, but they're like, yeah, they've grown up. They're going off to other things now. They're not really doing the church thing anymore. And nah, because they're not doing the church thing, I'm, I'm kind of out too. But great memory. Awesome memory. It just feels so good to remember that. I think that is what so much of our, uh, has become in our society today in America. This is what we call nominal Christians. Nominal meaning in name only. If you were to go up to um, a lot of most Americans today, hey, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And they'd be thinking about their memories, their, their nostalgia back in the day. 
But you start asking them about how they are active in their Christian life. It's like, oh yeah, I don't really do that anymore, but I still believe. I just don't go to church. I still believe. I just don't do, you know, what I used to do. I mean, that's just become normal in America, nominal Christianity, where it's just all about just a one-hit wonder. Great memory, great experience, but not really much to do uh, with my life today. You know, for us as followers of Jesus, and of course, Jesus never called us to make Christians. He called us to make disciples. And Christians and disciples are two very different things. Christians are people who believe but live their lives a different way, as if they don't believe. Disciples are people who have committed their lives, who said, we're putting Jesus in the middle and we're going to center our lives around what it means to be a Christ follower. And this is why we talk about disciples here, being disciples of Jesus. We don't spend a lot of time talking about Christians here at Faith Lutheran Church because we really are all about this idea of centering our lives around Jesus, not just on Sunday morning, maybe not just you know at a, an event, but every single day day. The thing about what I want to talk about this morning in terms of leadership and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, especially as it relates to John, the disciple John, is that being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is not just about moving from one mountaintop experience to another, but it's about being faithful and committed through the valleys through the rolling hills, through the deserts. I could keep going with all sorts of geographical topography. I mean, that's the discipleship journey, isn't it? It's not just this, oh man, Jesus showed up this week in my devotions, and then he showed up at the lunch table with my coworker, and then, praise God, through my kids, Jesus, they just started singing Jesus songs. And I mean, that's not my life, that's not your life, right? The discipleship journey is all over the place. And this is true, for sure true, the disciple John. John didn't just have mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience. John started following Jesus when he was a young guy. Of all the 12 disciples, John was probably the youngest, probably in his early 20s when Jesus invited him to follow along. And for three and a half years, here's this kid, this young 20-year-old, walking alongside with these other guys, also probably in their 20s, maybe in their 30s. They were all pretty young. But John was kind of the kid of the group. And for those three and a half years, they witnessed lots of crazy things, ups and downs, frankly. It wasn't all just up and to the right with Jesus hanging out with him. Because in one moment, he would heal someone, and they're like, this is amazing. It was awesome. But then in the next moment, he was talking about eating his body and drinking his blood. And they're like, this teaching is very strange, Jesus. You're making me really uncomfortable. And then they would have these run-ins with the religious people. And, and sometimes hanging out with Jesus meant just life was awkward. Life was hard. It meant being um, pushed away from other people. It meant sometimes your own family disassociated with you. I mean, walking with Jesus, as John did, it was not an easy thing. It, there were good times for sure. There were amazing times. Can you imagine being there when Jesus comes walking on the water? It's just like, hello, I get to see that. It's part of his, his testimony. 
They got to witness just the really cool stuff, but John witnessed lots of really hard teachings and experiences as well. Without question, the hardest part of John's life, or the lowest point in his life, was after they had arrested Jesus, all the disciples had scattered. Jesus was uh, uh, tried and hung on a cross to die. And as he's standing there, there's John looking Jesus eye to eye, and they have this conversation, and Jesus says, hey, John, I want you to take care of my mom. He was heartbroken. His rabbi, his teacher, his friend, his Messiah was dying on a cross. And then he died. It's a hard day for John. I mean, I think we can all agree that's a pretty low low in John's life. Now what do I do? I left the fishing business, you know. Where do I go? What do I do? But of course, just a couple days later, John had the highest of highs when he went to the tomb, experienced the resurrected Christ. He gave Jesus a hug, and they laughed together, and they ate a meal together, and they went fishing together. I mean, the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. That's what it means to be a disciple. And this is who John was. He was there through thick and thin. And then after, he was there also on the day when Jesus rose up to heaven. It's called the Ascension. And he's like, oh, he's going back to heaven. And he's like, oh, in the clouds. He's beyond the clouds. I don't see him anymore. All right, guys, time to get to work in the life of the church. And so there's the disciples, John and Peter and James, and, and they're getting things going in the church. And, you know, if you read the book of Acts, it's pretty exciting in, in, in the early church, right? Things are going well. Exciting things are happening. They're telling people about Jesus. There's, there's miracles and new people are coming and, and new disciples are being made and they're going out. It's exciting. But Rome's like, uh, this isn't so great. This is causing problems. And so Rome started picking off leaders in the church. Rome started killing those who professed the name of Jesus instead of the name of Caesar. So, I mean, again, in the early church, the best of times, isn't this awesome? There's so many people, you know, following Jesus in this Jesus movement. But, oh boy, be careful or you will be set on fire by the Romans. The worst of times and the best of times. And John just kept going. And then he's hearing or seeing or witnessing some of his friends and disciples who were killed. James, Peter, Andrew, one by one, they're all dying. Later on, the Apostle Paul, this guy who was vehemently opposed to being a Jesus follower, he became a Jesus follower. And he too was thrown in prison. And John gets word that John, uh, that, uh, that uh, Paul was beheaded in Rome. It's like, what is going on? I mean, at some point in time, John is the last guy standing. All the other disciples have been killed, have been martyred. It's just John. And sometime around maybe 80, 85 A.D., John was sent into exile on the island of Patmos. He went out there. It was a penal colony. 
He was just being punished for being a Jesus follower. On the island of Patmos, he wrote the, uh, the, the book of the Revelation. I mean, a book that continues to inspire us, confound us, confuse us, and just think about what, what is John writing about? Because God invites John to experience the heavenly realms and, the, and to uh, write about the seven churches and celestial things and you know what, what heaven's going to look like and, and the, the stages of heaven and kind of all that, which theologians for thousands of years have studied and argued about and uh, had great... It's just, we just continue to read the book of Revelation going, man, what was in John's head as he sat on the island of, of Patmos? Now, we don't know um, how John died or when John died exactly. Some people think he died on Patmos, on the island at that penal colony. Other people say, no, he came back to Ephesus. He was allowed to uh, come back to uh, what we call modern-day Turkey today. And that's where he died, taking care of Jesus' mother, Mary, in Ephesus. Maybe. But the point is, John lived a long life. He, lived, he was a senior citizen, right? He had the AARP card. He lived a long life. And as I think about the apostle Peter, the disciple Peter, he was the loud, brash guy, not John. John just was quiet, and he just kept steadily showing up and um, witnessing to Jesus through his actions, how he lived his life, certainly through his pen explaining about Jesus and the kingdom of God and all that good stuff. I love John because I relate to John because he was just faithful through thick and thin for the long haul. So let's look at one of the letters that John wrote. Uh, it's in 1 John 1, beginning with verse 5 this morning. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And John is reminding the church, John is reminding us that there is a distinction between light and darkness. And he wants to just kind of make this contrast really, really clear. God is light. And the world is dark. And I think for us, we need to constantly be reminded of that message. That God is holy. And that we are sinful. God is good. God is faithful. We are broken. And we are sinful. I think for us, for me, it's so easy to forget that we live in, in a broken and sinful world that we're actually living behind enemy lines. We think to ourselves that, oh, you know, things are supposed to be good in the world. Well, they were good in the world. Back when God created the world, before sin entered the world. But ever since, the world, Satan has been having his way. And we are living behind enemy lines. And I don't know about you, but I can get really comfortable in this world I can look around and say, ah, I've got what I want. I've got what I need. And life is good, and it's easy for me to sit back. And John, when he says that uh, God is light and there's no darkness in him at all, what he is doing is reminding us that we 
are living in a dark, dark world. It's easy for us to think to ourselves, well, is it really that bad? I mean, I'm okay. But John says, no, there's a problem. God is light and you're living in a dark world. Tim Keller, uh, who I learned about his passing while I was in Europe this summer, great pastor, great theologian. I've read a bunch of his books. And I love what Tim Keller, how he kind of uh, contrasts God's goodness and our brokenness, God's holiness and our sinful. Tim Keller writes this, and I think he really um, encapsulates kind of this dilemma that we live in. The gospel is this that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. You're broken. You're messed up. Even, it, it's even worse than what you think. It's bad. It's really bad. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we had ever dared hope. I mean, can you just see how Tim Keller is just you know, putting people in their corners? It's really bad. Your life is really messed up, but God is really good, and he loves you so much. And so what John is doing in this, this writing here is he's helping us to see what sin really is. It's darkness. It's brokenness, and it separates us from God. When we lean into this idea that we live in a broken world and that we are broken people, it's this uh-oh moment that we should have daily and regularly, I am broken and I am so separated from, from God. It's this idea that we're all of a sudden, when we start thinking about God's light and our darkness, it's the reality that God sees uh, and just inviting us into that. So John continues, if we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. And as I was reading this this week, I was thinking, man, that is just our society, isn't it? So many people live in this false world of thinking that they're walking in the truth, but they're still walking in darkness. And this is why it's so important for us to be reading scripture. Because everybody's got their own truth, right? But as Christ followers, there is only one truth. We believe there is only one truth. It's God's truth. And people can talk about how good they are or whatever their truth is all day long, but they're living a lie. They're living deception over and over in their lives. And, and frankly, it's, it's one of the reasons why I was so glad um, when Pastor Chris and Sarah came here during my sabbatical. It's because I knew Chris was a man of the word. I mean, you guys sat here and listened to, to his teachings. Am I right? I mean, Chris really believes, he actually believes that this is God's word and God's truth. He's going to stand on it. And so I knew you were in good hands when Chris and Sarah were here. Because there are so many preachers, there are so many pastors, there are so many Christians who call themselves by the name of Christian, but they completely live their lives a different way. And what John is telling us is they're living a lie. They're living in the darkness. 
It's so easy to lose perspective when we step away from God's word. And this is why we make God's word so central to the life of our congregation. It's so easy uh, for us to just look at ourselves in a different way. I don't know about you. Anybody else relate to that image? I mean, when I stand in the mirror, I'm 10 years younger and 20 pounds lighter. Anybody else? Man, it's like, oh, I look good. I'm lying to myself, right? You know, when I was in my 20s, I used to go mountain biking in, in Southern California. And I, I got a mountain bike, and so I'm, I'm going to go mountain biking. So a couple of years ago, I'm like, oh, I'm not that much older. So I got mountain biking. Not in Southern California, just up Kamlara Park here. Come on. That's not mountain biking. That's trail biking or something. I broke several ribs. It was the reality. I'm not in my 30s anymore, not even in my 40s anymore. And so over the last couple of years, I got back on my bike. I have not been back to Kamlara Park. My mountain biking days are over. But my bike is wearing out. So last week, I went over to the bike shop to get a new bike. And I walk into the bike shop. This young whippersnapper looks at me, and I said, hey, I need a new bike. He said, what kind of bike do you have? got? And I said, well, I got a mountain bike. And he said, oh. He said, let me show you a comfort bike. <laughs> I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, just take it out for a ride. And I said, it was really comfortable. And I rode it around, and he's like, well, here's the deal. If we put you in a bike that's, you know, beyond, you know, too much for you to handle, you're not going to ride it. It's just going to be too much. And I'm like, yeah, but if I get in that bike, my kids are going to make fun of me. Because I look like a 60, 70-year-old man in that bike. I'm not doing it. I'm like, you got anything in the middle? I'm done mountain biking, but I'm not ready for a comfort bike yet. He's like, I got a hybrid for you. So for the past two weeks, I've been riding a hybrid bike. And it's been awesome. But it's been this reality check for me. Instead of looking in the mirror like that, that's, no, it's got to align. And this is what John is saying. You've got to align your life with Scripture. Otherwise, you're just living in this fantasy world. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. I love this. We have fellowship with one another. John says you've got to stay connected to God's word, but you also got to stay connected in fellowship with one another. And as I was thinking about this idea of fellowship with one another, I got to thinking about Christmas Eve. And if you've been to a Christmas Eve service before, like a candlelight service, and, you know, wh wherever you go to church, it's always packed. There's lots of people and candles, and it's just that imagery of light. I mean, some of you are thinking about it right now, right? It's like, ah, oh, turn the lights down, candles up, everybody's together, silent night, right? It's just, it feels good. It feels really good. But then the next week is the end of December, and church is empty, Right? Because it doesn't feel so good. You've kind of gotten the good feelings out of the way. And what John is saying is if you want longevity in, in walking with Jesus, you got to stay connected to the body of Christ. you got to stay in fellowship with one another. This past week, my wife made a peach cobbler. 
and it was awesome. It was actually amazing. And after I went for a bike ride, I came home. I hadn't had dinner yet, and there's the peach cobbler. And I had to decide, broccoli or peach cobbler? I, I wanted the peach cobbler, right? But I knew I needed broccoli. I knew I needed uh, sustenance. I knew I needed something healthy. And then I could go for the peach cobbler. I think all of us, as it relates to Sunday morning worship, there's other things we would rather be doing on Sunday morning. When I was on sabbatical, I, I, I didn't even know what day of the week it was. I didn't know when it was Sundays. I didn't miss Sunday. I'm full disclosure. I didn't miss Sunday morning. There was not a time when I was on sabbatical. I'm like, man, I just, I just want to go to church. I, I just want to, you know, go in and, and hang out with people and, and be with people and, and sing Christian songs. That just never happened. I love just kind of being with my family and being on our own and doing what we're doing. I get why people don't go to church on Sunday. Sometimes I don't want to come to church on Sunday. We don't come to church on Sunday because we feel like it. Maybe you do. I don't. I don't come to church on Sunday because I feel like it. I come to church on Sunday because John and, the, and Jesus tells us we need to be together. We need to be get together to study his word, to worship him. And even when I'm not feeling like coming to church, I go to church so that I can be with you all. I need it. You're, you're my broccoli. And the more we're together on a Sunday morning, I'm like, ah, these guys are more like peach cobbler. This actually feels good. I get it. I understand it. And John says, this is the way it is for all of us. But we need to be in fellowship with one another. Eugene Peterson, another Presbyterian uh, pastor, uh, a couple years ago in his book, uh, Long Obedience, in the same direction, wrote this. Worship is an act that develops feeling, is not, is, is an act that develops, I'm going to start over. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God. It's not feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. It's not a feeling. We don't show up in this place because we're just, maybe you do, I don't. Eugene Peterson doesn't. Doesn't just go, I'm going to church because my life is so awesome. My life is so amazing. I just have God everywhere. I'm just oozing over with Jesus. So I'm going to go to, wor to worship and worship God. He says, that's not what it is. He says, we go to worship empty. We go to worship looking to experience God. And throughout our worship and through the word and through the fellowship, maybe, oftentimes, at least for me, God shows up. And I get filled by God in this place. So I just want to close the words of John as he's thinking about growing in leadership growing in influence. You've got to make worship a priority in your life. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We just, we just read this. Did you forget already? Reminder, you're deceiving yourself. 
You know, you lie a lot. You lie to your family. You lie to your coworkers. You lie to your neighbors. Do you know who you lie to the most? Yourself. Because I do it too. We lie to ourselves about our spiritual condition. I'm not so bad. You think about your sorority sister, right? Oh, she's bad. I'm not so bad. You think about that guy down the street, your neighbor. Oh, he's bad. I'm not so bad. I've got this cousin. Let me tell you about how bad he is. We compare ourselves to other people. We're like, I'm not so bad. No, you're bad. You are wretched. You are horrible. You are sinful. You are broken. Aren't you glad you came to church today? You know how I know that? Because I am too. I just look in the mirror and I'm like, oh man, I am so broken. If I claim to be without sin, I deceive myself and the truth is not in us. You are sinful and a wretched sinner. John says if you want to you know, be a leader, if you want to live your life in, in witness for the long haul, not just a one-hit wonder. Study the word. Gather in worship. And the final thing is he talks about the importance. He's like, ah, there's a separation. But I'm going to give you a solution. He says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jeff read that this morning. It's that great reminder that we are bad, God is good, we are darkness, God is light, but there's a solution, folks. You don't have to leave here thinking that you're a horrible, wretched person, even though you are. There's still a solution, and John tells us what that solution is. He says it's confession. We need to be about confession, because this is what helps bridge us between ourselves and God. And I want to invite you, if you're not already, to just practice daily confession. I know when I, uh, I'm having my quiet time with God and I'm reading scripture and in some prayer time, I, I begin my prayers or some point in time in my prayers, it's just that, man, God, I, I've really messed up this week. I've really messed up this morning and it's like six o'clock in the morning. Just that daily, regular uh, confession, weekly worship. This is why we practice confession every single week here at Faith. It's just so important. It's that, it's that way to help us to uh, connect back to God. And, the, and then finally, in your life group, it's that time for you to get together with other people and talk about your brokenness and failings. And I just want to say this. We, these are not Bible studies. I know sometimes we call them Bible studies. But the life groups here at Faith Lutheran Church, we intentionally call them life groups. Because Bible studies tend to be about knowledge. They tend to be about information. They tend to be about, you know, all sorts of uh, informational kind of pieces that's, that's going on in Scripture. And there's a place for Bible study. And we need to be studying God's Word for sure. And I know a part of every one of your life groups, there is some studying of Scripture going on. But the primary purpose of a life group is not Bible study. Because it's really easy for us me, as, as a Jesus follower, to know lots of information, to know lots of facts. We can kind of even try to up one another in all the different facts we know about the Bible. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, warns us against 
even studying too much scripture. No, I'll just say knowing too much about the Bible. He says, knowledge puffs up. What Paul really wants us to be about is love and love building up. And so as you're gathering together in your life groups, I want to encourage you to be thinking, okay, we're going to study the Bible. It's going to be good. There's going to be some facts. There's going to be some information. There's going to be some understanding. But that's not the primary purpose of our gathering together. It's not a Bible study. It's also not a fellowship group. It's not a group of people just getting together, talking about life, talking about your kids, talking about your jobs, talking about your your stuff. Because you know what happens when a group of church people gets together uh, when it's just all about fellowship? Oh, it devolves, right? And I've been in those groups before. Maybe you have, I don't know. And it's just, oh, the world is horrible and everything is horrible and my kids are horrible and my job is horrible and my boss is horrible and my neighbors are horrible and my kids are horrible. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, right? I mean, it can turn into a session. Have you ever been in a, in a group like, a church group like that where just everything is horrible in the world? Because when we talk about how everything is horrible in the world, of course what we're saying is, I'm so great because I'm a Christian. I'm a part of a fellowship group, a part of Faith Lutheran Church. But the world is horrible. These are not fellowship groups with no agenda where we just talk about stuff and politics and the weather and the government and, you know, all that junk. I mean, that, that'll probably happen in your life group. It happens in my life group for sure. But if you don't have an agenda, it will just devolve and you will feel so, You'll come out of there going, man, the world is horrible, but I'm so good because I went to my fellowship group today, my Bible study, and I know stuff. They're not Bible studies. They're not fellowship groups. We call them disciple. Well, we call them life groups, but they're really discipleship groups. And more than anything, I hope, I hope, I hope you see them as confession groups. You know, one of the things I thought was really interesting as we traveled around Europe and went in all these cathedrals, all these Catholic churches, is the confessional booth. You ever been in a Catholic church and seen the confessional booth? It's like, ah, that's really interesting. I'm not doing that, right? And I think sometimes we as Protestant Christians, we look at everything Catholic and we're just like, get rid of it. But I think the Catholics were really on to something there because John was on to it. Jesus was on to it. You gotta confess your sin to one another. And we just happen here at Faith Lutheran Church to do that through our life groups to come into the place where you're gathering with your people and unload your stuff, your brokenness, your garbage. One time I was in a life group and a person in the, in the group said, again, this is a church group and we, we think we're supposed to be so perfect. They said, man, I have so much trouble forgiving my neighbor. And, and we all were kind of quiet. And then the next person said, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. It's like, ah, oh. pretty soon all of us are like, I'm not the only one. I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but I have so much trouble loving my neighbor. I have so much trouble forgiving my neighbor. See, this is what happens is when we share our life with others, when we confess our sins to one another, it brings us closer together and it, and it just, it frees us up to be in relationship with God.
God's word, our worship, and confession, and community. I think when we lean into those things, this really helps us to get at our witness for Jesus and to be able to live a long life of discipleship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you invite us into this relationship. We thank you, God, that you invite us to confess our sins, to just come clean with how broken we are and how much we need you. And so, Lord, as a faith community, help us to not deceive ourselves. As individuals, help us not to deceive ourselves. Help us, God, to see ourselves as you see us, broken and yet beloved. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your disciple, John. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.